0: Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I am the senior administrator here at the Hendricks Center. And today we're going to be talking about theodicy and the problem of evil. We're joined by Dr. Tim Yoder, who is the Associate and Associate Professor mm-hmm. of Theology here at DTS and one of our local philosophical and apologetics experts. And Keith Lindley, who is a PhD student here in the Theology Department and came from to us from Baylor, correct? Yes, uh-huh. With a uh, bachelor's in… Digi- film and digital film media. Film and digital media. I tried to say that several <laughs> times and it never came out and it didn't this time either. So, well, thank you so much for joining us and for being here. Um, and I think to get started, let's just jump in and talk about how you all got interested in the problem of evil in the first place because that's a pretty heavy topic. So, yes. Keith, why don't we start with you and yeah. then we'll. Here from Dr. Yoder.
2: Well, so like you said, I I started out uh, with a bachelor's in film at Baylor University. And when I first came to DTS, I was planning on really going back into film upon graduating. But then I really fell in love with the study of theology and apologetics and things of that nature. And when I decided to sort of make this shift more to the academic side of things the apologetics and philosophy of religion just came very naturally with all of that and so uh, Problem of Evil started with some of my classes uh, back a few years ago with Dr. Blunt and all the the apologetics and philosophy classes he taught so that's how I kind of got into this and then uh, when I was graduating with my ThM, I had to pick a focus for my thesis, and uh, I wrote a you know new sort of theodicy approach called a narrative theodicy with my mm-hmm. ThM thesis, and that's how I got really into the problem of evil study.
1: Okay, and Dr. Yoder, how did you said you you just mentioned that you even just did a presentation on this yeah. somewhere else? So how did you get involved in it?
3: Well, um, so my. Previous uh, appointment before coming to ETS was at Kieran University in the Philadelphia area where I was a professor of philosophy and ethics and apologetics and world religions and a number of things. And in teaching my Introduction to Philosophy course to undergrad students who were not philosophy majors, um, I tried to, to do the the whole gamut of philosophy in a single semester. And after doing it for a couple of years, I realized how interesting and important the problem of evil is because while there's lots of important philosophical issues, uh, many of them are things that people aren't really all that interested in, like the problem of universals or the problem of nominalism or the other sorts. Of, philosophers love these things, but ordinary people are not. But the problem of evil is one that, that hits all of us. Um, we all feel you know the, the suffering of our world we all recognize that this world is not the way it could be and so um, you know these the kinds of disasters that uh, that um, that philosophers and theologians wrestle with these are part of everyday life so this is one of the areas that is most applicable to everyday life um, and so as I began to, to teach on this the students really responded and it gradually grew to become a more and more important part of my courses and my own thinking and study and research you um, and uh, and it's also it's it's also uh, of interest to me because it's one of the one of the best places where philosophy and theology can intersect. And I enjoy uh, academic work that that um, lives in the uh, the intersection, the uh, the interdisciplinary aspect of academic thinking. And uh, and the problem of evil is one that that is has obviously very solid roots in theology and the word of God, but also in philosophical reflection. And bringing the two together, I think, is very fruitful in thinking through this problem.
1: Mm-hmm. So the so the problem of evil, which is essentially how evil and an omnipotent, omniscient, all-loving God can exist at the same time, mm-hmm. is like you said, so deeply felt and discussed in academia, but also at a dinner table. It's just, right. and it's a very emotional conversation for it a sure lot is. of people. So just so that we're all on the same page, would you mind walking us through the problem properly sure. and just kind of shaping it so that we can all know what we're talking about?
3: Absolutely. So a good place to start is with the Greek philosopher Epicurus who lived uh, around, roughly around the same time as Aristotle about 300 years before Christ. And um, and Epicurus uh, was a bit of a skeptic um, and he, um, he posed this question. Um, if God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? And um, and he didn't think there was a good answer to this question. And so he he dismissed uh, most thoughts about God, and many of his followers did as well. And we even, re, you know, they show up in the New Testament um, in the famous chapter in Acts 17. Um, and, but his question res- resounds down through the history of philosophy as people try to make sense of this idea, right? And, and the classic problem of evil, as philosophers and theologians often comment on it, is, is these three propositions, uh, that God is all good, God is all powerful. Uh, which we as Christians and theists clearly believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but evil exists in the world. There is suffering. There's pain. There, there are things that are not the way they're supposed to be. And, and the, the challenge put out to us is, well, if your God is so good and if your God is so powerful, why is there cancer? Why are there earthquakes? Why are there shootings? Why are there um, premature deaths? Why are there, why is there abuse? Why do all of these things happen? And, um, and it's it's an important question. Um, and some of the most, <clears throat> some of the boldest of the skeptics, believe that the problem of evil rules God out altogether. If there's evil in the world, there is no God. Um, there are others that are more cautious and say, well, uh, maybe there is a God, but maybe He's not very good, or maybe He's not very powerful, or maybe He's not very uh, interested, or maybe He's got other things on His mind. Um, and so, uh, you, you, so we have some that say, on the basis of the problem of evil, there is no God at all. Others that say, well, on the basis of the problem, well, we have a God, but not the good and loving God of the Bible, but uh, some kind of flawed or second-rate God, maybe a disinterested God, or maybe, a, maybe a, a not very powerful God, or maybe a God who's um, playing video games, or uh, you know, catching mm-hmm. up on sleep, um, or something like that.
1: So, if we, as Christians, look at this, is there somewhere in Scripture that? Are, are there different passages that we should consider as we're looking at it, and even that just reveal the problem, and maybe people in Scripture trying to wrestle with the problem?
3: Yeah, there's a lot of places. I think I think the first thing that we should acknowledge is that um, the Bible uh, clearly reflects this problem, right? Job, right? Job cries out. You know, why did these bad things happen to me? Habakkuk also says, why, O oh Lord, do you make me look on evil? The various psalmists cry out about the evil that they face. Even Jesus himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, so throughout the Bible, we see people recognizing that there is suffering in the world and that the world is, um, as we experience it right now, is not the way it could be.
1: So we're in good company. It's we, not bad to ask the question. Itself. Absolutely, right. <laughs> it's not I think, disrespectful of God or the world that He created to ask it. We're in good company amongst people in Scripture that we obviously look to.
3: The various laments that we read, I think, give us permission to ask the question: mm-hmm. Why? 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 Lord, is there suffering? Why did this bad thing happen to me? Why um, are things not the way that we expect them to be?
1: Mm-hmm. Now, Keith, the church has historically. And you don't even have to go into historically, but Mm -hmm. the church has worked to address this question, this problem. And would you mind walking through kind of some of the ways that they have addressed that, ways that they've come up to try to answer it, or just even engage it? Because, like you said, Epicurus from the very beginning didn't even really think there would be an answer. Right. So.
2: Yeah, so typically, uh, apologists have tried to address the problem of evil by presenting a, what they're going to call, a morally sufficient reason that God might have for permitting the evil that's in the world. And so they've they've tried to find something, so uh, Dr. Yoder gave us these two propositions, or three propositions earlier, statements, and the apologist wants to find maybe a fourth that they can add to this set that will show that, oh, okay, well, God does have a good reason for the evil that exists in the world, and uh, typically a... one major one throughout the history of the church was put forward by Augustine, and that is the free will theodicy, and it's been championed throughout the history of the church. Most recently, Alvin Plantinga has taken it up and changed it a little bit to, to make it a free will defense. But ultimately, this says, "Hey, uh, yes, God is all powerful; He is all good, and evil does exist in the world, but..." if evil had not existed, then God perhaps would not have been able to create creatures that are significantly free. That if you're going to have creatures that have the capacity for moral goodness, there also is going to be the possibility for moral evil and uh, to protect the freedom of his creatures and whatnot that God uh, perhaps allowed there to be this moral evil in the world. And uh, that's called the free will theodicy, so that's one of the ways they they put this forward. Uh, A more recent one that's really taking a lot of the philosophical literature today is called the skeptical theist defense. And it's kind of got a funny name, especially because theists don't generally speaking think them themselves to be skeptical, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, what this one is alleging is really it gets close to what the book of Job uh, addresses the problem of evil with. And that is, uh, well, we are finite humans and who, how, who are we to say that God doesn't have a good reason? If, if we were to know all the reasons that God uh, could possibly have for allowing the evil to, because we would need to have the same all-knowing mind that God has. And as human beings, uh, we, we lack that kind of knowledge. So it's really actually inappropriate for us to allege that there's no good reason God could possibly have for allowing the evil in the world. And so that's more recent one called the skeptical theist defense. And there, there's, there's many others we could talk about pretty much the, the rest of the time. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, those are probably the two most popular and probably the two most orthodox that okay. you hear right now.
1: Now, I heard you use two different terms, both a theodicy and a defense. Right. Would you mind talking about the right. difference in those?
2: So a theodicy is – well, let's get into the, the terminology. You know, here at DTS, we have our introductory to Theology classes, and we typically define our terms early. And so with theology, <laughs> exactly. we have these yeah. Greek roots. We have theos and logos. Theos meaning God, logos meaning the study of uh, or the word. And so we have theology, the study of God. So likewise with theodicy, we have theos. And the Greek word decay. So theos, God, and the decay meaning the justice or righteousness of God. So a theodicy tries to defend God's righteousness and justice in light of the evil that's in the world. And so throughout the history of the church we're going to see people put forward theodicies and the main distinction between a theodicy and a defense is a theodicy is going to allege to know one of God's actual reasons. An actual reason for allowing evil to exist, whereas a defense is where things have moved in the more uh, contemporary literature, and a defense says, "Well, I'm not going to suggest an actual reason, but maybe a possible reason God could have." And so there's strengths and weaknesses to both. The theodicy is obviously going to be harder to. To demonstrate because it's supposedly an actual reason, but uh, if it's achieved, it's more powerful. The defense, though, is a more humble approach, um, and it's a little bit easier to achieve. Uh, but at the same time, there is something to be said for the humility of saying, you know, okay, maybe this is a possible reason God could have. I'm not going to myself claim to know the mind of God, um, especially if the argumentation in the logic doesn't get me to a point where I can declare this as an actual reason confidently. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to see a lot more defenses in the contemporary literature, and you're going to see more theodicies throughout the history of the church.
1: Okay. Now, this has largely, like what you've been describing, I think would largely be described or characterized as an academic response. Right. And there's a little bit of a difference, especially when you're talking about these Really emotional topics between the academic response and the pastoral response. Could mm-hmm. you speak to that a little sure. bit, Dr. Yoder? Sure. I
3: think it's it's important any kind of discussion like this to to bear this distinction in mind because it it helps govern how we use the information. So. Um, we can imagine a situation maybe in, in our church or our family or our neighborhood in which some something awful happens, a car accident and uh, maybe some people die or, or uh, a sudden illness or something like that. And people in the midst of the grief and suffering, our um, Christian reaction because we are um, – because we we are filled with the Holy Spirit, um, is to is to is to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, to comfort, to bear one another's burdens. There's a whole a whole raft of scriptures in the New Testament that talk about this this compassion that we're supposed to feel, that we we walk through the trials together, um, just to be with them, to um, to to pray with, to cry with, <laughs> to bake a casserole for you know, all those sorts of things. Um, and and that's great because we, in the in the moment we can we can Walk with the difficult things with people, and that's bearing one another's burdens, weeping with those who weep. That's what I mean by the the, the pastoral or the personal. It doesn't require a lot of education, you know, or um, you know, or, or lots of theology. just you know simple compassion. But at some point, um, those those simple acts of compassion aren't enough. You know, not in the moment, right? In the moment, that's what people need. The moment of grief, the moment of, of intense suffering. But down the road, maybe someone who has lost a child feels, you know, well why did why did this happen? Why did God allow does does God not love me? Does you know and at that point, they don't need another casserole, right, mm-hmm. or or another shoulder to cry on. They need some. They need some answers. And so, um, and so that's when I think sitting down to help think through these things in an academic way, using good solid theology, good solid philosophy, to think through the answers to help reassure them. No, the the it's not necessarily that God is punishing you. It's not necessarily that that God hates you. Um, in fact, in fact, it's probably just the opposite. And 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 um and so balancing those two together i think in our responses to the problem we need we need the pastoral approach which is just loving people and being compassionate but we also need the academic approach and and i so a podcast like this helps to equip us for those more difficult questions, when that's the appropriate response,
1: and in context, it exactly. is exactly the right thing to do. Not necessarily exactly. to launch into this with no, somebody no, not when somebody's
3: crying. Just Let's talk
1: about something. the free will defense. No, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. we went not going to be satisfying.
3: No. <laughs> no. no, or appropriate.
1: So, with this conversation, we're weaving in and out of really important things about the character of God and important assertions about the character of God. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to throw out a question to both of you, and Keith, we'll start with you. What are the theological parameters that we need to know about, kind of the lines for us playing the game on the field? What are the appropriate ways to think about God and the world and evil, and what are those things that are outside, and we really shouldn't be entertaining as we're thinking through this?
2: So Dr. Yoder brought some of this up earlier, but you know, uh, the problem of evil, if we were to expand it Past God's goodness and power, we can throw his omniscience, his all knowingness in there. Mm -hmm. So God is all powerful, he's all good, he's all knowing, yet evil exists in the world. And sometimes you'll have people who might be willing to say, well, perhaps God isn't all-powerful. Maybe the reason that tornado uh, destroyed that town and killed those families is because God knew about it and he loved those people, but he just lacked the power to stop that tornado from happening. And we want to, uh, to really stray away from those kind, of, those kind of approaches to theodicy because that's going to uh, really challenge the way we think about God's power in an orthodox manner. Likewise, somebody might say, oh, well, Uh, Perhaps God just didn't know. If he knew about these things ahead of time, he could have planned appropriately and used his power to prevent these bad events from happening. So perhaps he didn't know about those things. And we want to watch out for those as well and make sure that we're keeping uh, the character of God as revealed in Scripture orthodox and as the history of the church has maintained it for the past 2,000 years. And probably the worst of all of these is uh, the notion that, and you usually don't hear people go this route because people are, they want to maintain God's goodness, but the worst approach you could have is, well, maybe God is all-powerful and he is all-knowing, but maybe he's not good. And uh, that would probably be the one we'd want to stay away from the most uh, out of of these theodicy approaches we could possibly take. And the thing is, uh, there are theodicies in the history of the church that do try to go one of these routes, or or maybe they'll even challenge something else. Uh, Like, for instance, uh, British theologian John Hick put forward what he called a soul-making theodicy. And where there are many things to be commended in this approach, there is a few areas where he really challenges orthodox areas of Christian doctrine. And in his theodicy he says, well, perhaps uh, the reason we are suffering is because suffering builds character. It makes us into better moral people. And you know what? Perhaps God didn't make creation initially good, and perhaps there was no fall. Perhaps He made us imperfect so that we could continue to grow into better spiritual beings through the suffering in the world. And uh, wh- whereas that theodicy doesn't disturb any of God's attributes is revealed in Scripture, it does uh, mess quite significantly with the orthodox doctrines of the creation and the mm-hmm. fall. Mm-hmm. Um, right and so we do want to stray away also from theodicies that might challenge other areas of orthodox Christian doctrine that lie even outside of God's attributes.
1: Dr. Yard, do you have anything to add as far as parameters that we should be aware of?
3: Yeah, I think we need to be careful um, to uh, to recognize that while God uses suffering, and God can achieve his purposes through it, that doesn't make suffering a good thing or even mm-hmm. a necessary thing. And um, and so maybe this is more uh, the next level, not just the character of God, but the actions of God and the way God um, has set up the world. But um, But suffering is... Suffering is is a part of our world. I, I agree with what Keith said earlier about the free will defense that God gave us the ability to choose. It, it's part of what makes us humans, and um, and because we have the ability to make genuine decisions, some of those decisions, like Adam and Eve's in the Garden of Eden, are going to be sinful, and um, and so therefore there's there's evil and suffering in the world. Um, but just because they're suffering, that doesn't mean that God is punishing us. I, I think that, uh, that the, the story of Job illustrates very clearly that, um, that Job suffered the things that he went through, not because he had sinned, but because God was testing him. So there's a difference between uh, God disciplining or testing us and punishing us. Um, it's interesting. There is that that particular point is repeated in the New Testament. It's in John chapter nine, where the disciples see a blind man, and and they say to Jesus, they say, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he is in this situation? And Jesus uh, said, Neither of them. Uh, this happened so that this that uh, that God will be glorified. And the the point is is that it he was refuting this this kind of punishment theodicy that said all suffering is punishment. Um, that's actually more of a Hindu idea than a Christian idea. It's more the idea of karma than it is actual Christian theology, mm-hmm. although there are lots of Christians that uh, that, that want to go there and make that move, that if something bad happened, it must be because uh, you sinned, right? If, if, if you got a flat tire, it's because you haven't been reading your Bible enough. Or if you got sick, it's because uh, you cursed God or something like that. And I think we need to be very careful. That's not what the scriptures teach. Right? The man born blind was, was born blind because it was an opportunity for Jesus to reveal the power and the ma- majesty of God in, in, in making, doing that miracle. The suffering itself wasn't good, but it was used for, um, for a good outcome. And, uh, and I think that, I think that idea uh, runs through the Scriptures. When James tells us to count it all joy, brothers, when you suffer, it's because, not because the suffering is good, but because the suffering produces character and, and maturation in our faith.
0: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture.
1: So are there any theodicies or defenses that have been pre- presented, which you mentioned, John Hicks, that people listening might be familiar with or may have heard and not necessarily know exactly where they're coming from that stray mm. from what we've, these parameters that maybe should just be on their radar when they start saying these things or you know, this specific line of thought really is, is probably not the best way to go. Dr. Yoder, why don't you start? Sure.
3: Um, well, let me let me uh, go back to one I just mentioned, uh, which is what uh, what I call the punishment theodicy. Mm-hmm. I think this is one of the most common, and it's it's the idea that um, that if that all evil, all suffering um, is a direct result of a specific sin, and so when bad things happen to us, it happens to us because we have sinned, and God is is enacting um, an immediate punishment, um, and. Now it's clear that sometimes God does punish, right? When Ananias and Sapphira lied to the to the church, right? Um, Peter called them out, and and they died; their lives ended. Um, but but actually, that typically is 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 somewhat rare, or at least not the not always the norm. A lot of times, we we see God as patient and as waiting for opportunities for repentance, um, and uh, and giving people a chance to uh, to. To ask forgiveness, to confess, to come to faith, um, and so we 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 actually read lots of examples in the store in in the Bible, and we see lots of examples in our everyday life of people that suffer, and it's not um, a punishment, you know. If, if if somebody if a family driving home from from church or a ball game gets hit by a drunk driver, and um, you know, and the family is killed, well, it's it's not their fault that they suffered. It's because the The drunk driver hit them, Um, and uh, you know if 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 somebody gets raped or abused, it's not their fault that they that they suffer. It's because of the the person making making bad choices, and so so we have to be very careful. Um, There have been there have been a number of of Christian people who have have used this this uh, sort of a way of thinking, and. and I think it's dangerous. I remember after 9-11, a certain prominent mm-hmm. pastor said that the reason that, that this happened is because God um, is punishing America because we allow abortions and, and we allow homosexuality. Well, that's just – it's bad theology. God doesn't necessarily punish these things immediately. God, the way God works in the world is much more complicated than that. It's not just a simple one-for-one. One. That's karma. That's Hinduism the christian the christian approach to these things is is a lot more a lot more comp- complex
1: with suffering not coming necessarily not coming as punishment i think there's also something i've seen at least being raised in the church of suffering is sanctification it, mm-hmm. and and so i feel like sometimes that creates this idea that you're just waiting for god to have the to sh- drop the shoe. You know, you because and then and you're supposed to be okay with it because it's making you holy and and you know, sanctifying you and that kind of thing. How would you all answer that question? Because I think that even more than punishment sometimes mm-hmm. is what people think and they don't really know how to think through the suffering and it can lead to this understanding of god or fear of god that i don't think should right. be there hmm. so right. how would you all respond to that
2: this is almost the flip side of yeah it seems of, like
1: the other side uh, of the coin
2: rather than the sort of uh, retributive justice sort of theodicy it's almost the well christ promised us trials and tribulations in this life so we just inevitably are going to wait for them and you know god's going to make us suffer because we are believers and i think that misses the points of christ saying he doesn't say that uh that God's going to cause you the suffering in your life. He's saying that there will be trials and tribulations in this world. It is the, the the sinfulness of the world that's going to bring these trials and tribulations. Yet, God is so good that when this suffering comes into your life, He's gone. he's not going to let it remain unredeemed, just pointless suffering. When the world's going to cause suffering to believers, uh, God is so good and so powerful that he is then going to redeem that into the redemptive purposes of God growing his children more into the likeness of Christ. So uh, God's not the one dropping the shoe at all. What God is doing actually is when the suffering does come into the believer's life, he's the one coming in and acting redemptively to help grow them more into, the, into Christ's likeness. So uh, I think we need to have a more appropriate way of thinking about the suffering that comes into our lives. Uh, to, to say that God causes the suffering is almost side with the person who says, well, God's not good. Um, in, in the in it's response to this question, to that, yeah, yeah, and so th- I think that's the the more appropriate response is if we're going to maintain God's goodness, that we maintain God uh, is not the cause of the suffering and evil in the world, but He's so good that He acts redemptively through it.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Good.
1: So your PhD or your work in your PhD and hopefully moving forward will largely be in developing this narrative theodicy. Yes. Could you walk us through it and just describe it a little bit? Because it is potentially a new way of looking at things, and so just let us know how you're thinking through it.
2: Right. Well, first of all, I'm thankful that Dr. Yoder is going to be working with this, uh, with me on this. He is going to be one of my readers uh, for this dissertation, and so we'll be talking about this a lot over the next few years. Indeed. (laughs) But uh, where this came from as the whole is, so I already said that I had this background in film and filmmaking. And when I started making this transition to ministry and the academic side of things, um, I thought to myself, and I I was, I think, praying and talking to God, and I, I said, You know, Lord, I know you gave me this background in film and storytelling, and that's not pointless or purposeless. You have a reason for that, why you let me study this for so long uh, in college. And then it sort of, uh, God made it clear to me that, okay, well, he wants me to use this in my theological uh, approach to dealing with apologetics and things of that nature. And so there came this point where I said, okay, well, we already talked about how uh, apologetics and philosophy are often cross-disciplinary between philosophy of religion and theology. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what if we were to make this even more cross-disciplinary and if we were able to bring literary studies mm-hmm. into this and try to make this more accessible to uh, lay people everywhere because as we talked about earlier philosophy is often dealing with nominalism and the problem of universals and mm-hmm. even, even a free will defense most people they understand they're free but they're not going to talk about counterfactuals of creaturely freedom or no. things th- of, of that nature but what does everybody do Everybody goes to the movies, watches Netflix, reads books. Uh, we have entire industries devoted to this that you know gross billions of dollars every single year in America alone. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this could be a possibly very appealing thing. If we can bring uh, the study of theodicy to literary studies, uh, this could be very appealing to people everywhere because this is something that we all experience, but it's also something we all love. Mm-hmm. And so th- this narrative theodicy approaches is um, that's. One of these beneficial goods, or I guess morally sufficient reasons, like I mentioned earlier, that God might have for permitting evil to exist is the existence of stories about good versus evil. And uh, I call these really the stories that really matter, or the great stories. Uh, and. Basically, the stories that humans really enjoy to partake in and to listen to and even to tell themselves are the stories about good uh, in conflict with evil and good eventually overcoming evil. But then it appeared to me that, wait a second. If evil wasn't actually something that uh, had a tangible presence in the world, then we probably wouldn't be able to tell these stories of good versus evil. So I, I was trying to imagine, you know, a world in let's say, let's pick Star Wars, a world, in, uh, a Star Wars world with no evil. And so you have young Luke Skywalker uh, living on Tatooine, and it's a desert planet. No, cr- scratch that. It's not a desert planet because that's kind of Flourish. a <laughs> harsh environment. It, it's it's a fruitful planet with. Trees and flowers and everything and he's getting ready to go fight the Galactic Empire actually no he's not because they're an evil organization And if there's no evil in the world, then uh, he's not going to go fight the Empire actually Luke's going to go be a baker And he's going to bake cinnamon rolls for Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru and that's the end of the story and guess how much money that grossed at the box office Mm zero dollars because I we, we, we like that story, but at the same time, there's no conflict. There's no tension between good and evil. And we, I think we want to know that goodness is going to triumph over evil in the end. And as Christians, we believe that it will in Jesus Christ. But uh, we have these stories that we love so much about good versus evil. And the narrative theodicy approach is really to suggest that if we didn't have... The presence of evil in the world we wouldn't be able to tell these stories, and it's going to start from there, and we're going to develop it into a more robust uh, a more robust argument that really details all of the ways that uh, moral evil and natural evil are present in these stories that we tell and if we didn't have examples of uh, this moral evil and natural evil in the world, we very likely wouldn't be able to tell these stories and so that's the theodicy kind of in a, in a nutshell
1: okay, and now Dr. Yoder, you've heard this. Several times from him, I think in your mm-hmm. courses and mm-hmm. interactions, what do you feel like this can add to the conversation?
3: Well, I think it it um, it can certainly add um, a, an explanatory um, factor that helps us to see why there why the, the place of evil, why God allows evil to persist. You know, because um, because we uh, we work through these difficult circumstances, creating the good, the, the stories that matter. Um, the stories that matter include um, overcoming problems, right? I'm just, I know it's in his work, he's you know continue to talk about literary theory. The idea of a story is that the protagonist faces a challenge and works through that, and then learns a lesson, develops morals, becomes a better person, and, and so that's why it's a happy ending. You know, the the, the good triumphs over the evil, and and that's and. Well, that's, you know, that seems like a pretty simple sort of a thing, it's actually a very profound thing that we, and it, it mash, mashes with the Christian story, which is that God is going to triumph in the end, that, um, that we, are, we are looking forward to a happy resolution and not a, a sad one. I do think that there is a challenge, though, with the narrative theodicy, um, and Keith Keith knows this already. I'm <laughs> well, I'm about, about to it. ask you yes. what you feel
1: like the critiques coming are. Yeah, mm-hmm. either so either one of you can.
3: <laughs> well, the critique is: does that does this make evil necessary in the world? And and you mm-hmm. know and and could because because we we do want the existence of good stories, like for instance, a heaven and a, a new heaven and a new earth without. Without sin, without tears, without sorrow, can um, so we want to we want to allow for a metaphysical state of being in which there is no evil. Does the narrative The Odyssey mean that evil is necessary in the world?
2: Right. And so I think the way to address that question is, when I first started writing the Narrative Theodicy, uh, I made a very much more grandiose claim, and it was that all narratives require there to be the presence of evil in the world. And then uh, in conversations with professors like Dr. Kreider, and I think Dr. Yoder, uh, it became apparent, you know, there are stories in Scripture where it does seem like there is little to no evil, like, you know, the the narrative of Revelation 21.4, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth with no evil. So it became apparent that no, evil is not necessary to tell narratives, period. But if we're going to be able to tell narratives about good overcoming evil, it seems like there has to be some kind of presence. So it's not logically necessary. You don't have to have evil in the world. Mm-hmm. It's for a narrative, uh, a theodicy, but only if you make it a more humble approach. And that's where we r- r- sort of uh, redefined it to make it this narrative approach about what I'm calling morally significant narratives and these are the ones that have good versus evil whereas there are existence of stories without necessarily the good versus evil. You can even say maybe Genesis 1 uh, might be an example of a story where there is not really evil present because it's the story of God creating and it is good, it is good, it is good. Now evil does come in the picture later on, but uh, we can tell stories clearly without the presence of evil. It's just the ones that we really, really love that we find the most uh, aesthetically beautiful and that we find the most, I think, ethically pleasing show us uh, how good goodness is in contrast to this evil that it is overcoming. And uh, one way that I think this plays out in this narrative theodicy is uh, in her book Wandering in Darkness, Eleanor Stump writes that every theodicy has to consider the afterlife that has to consider what, how is this going to matter in the future. And I think one way that this uh, plays out in the narrative theodicy the Odyssey is that by experiencing this struggle versus good and evil in this world really, and then by being able to tell these stories versus of good versus evil, that we will still be able to tell these stories of good versus evil in the new heavens and the new earth in the future. And that these will be stories where we reflect on how good Christ was and overcoming the evil in the world. We'll still remember evil, but we'll remember how Christ overcame it and defeated it and he is that much more worthy of worship and things of that nature because of it. So I think that uh, in this state of affairs that we're in now where evil exists uh, temporarily for people who trust in Christ's death and resurrection that it's setting us up to have this good of storytelling of these great stories like the story of scripture um, that we will be able to tell for all eternity you know, as we worship God and talk about his triumphs over good and evil. But, uh, you know, I don't know what the eschaton is going to be like entirely, but I do hope that we will still tell new creative stories with fictional characters and whatnot that tell of good overcoming evil as uh, art is a good thing, and I hope that it continues on in the new heavens and the new earth. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, this idea of the eschaton Mm -hmm. in – Relating to theodicies has been an interesting one to me. It came up in a course that all of us were in, and we had a, a, quite a long conversation about that. But I'm curious if either one of you could outline a little bit more about how other theodicies, like you said, they all have to take the eschaton into account. Mm-hmm. How how might that look for some other odyssey? Theod, I'm sorry, not odysseys, theodicies.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I think. Um one of the ways that that it seems to me that that, that we can answer your question is that um, justice requires, right? This this final summing up of all things. One one of the things that we as Christians um, recognize is that um, not all um, not all evils are repaid immediately, and in fact, even in this world, right. There are, there are people that, that – um, there are martyrs and others that suffer injustice, and their um, what is owed to them because of what they suffered is not paid back to them, right? Mm-hmm. Some, some criminals die, um, die in their beds with their family all around them, rich and happy, you know, at the end of a long life. And lots of um, Christian folks die at the hand of uh, of evil people. There are martyrs and and others. And so so not everything is is wrapped up and finished in this world. And so if we think about some kind of a a, a greater good defense that 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 holds that that the, the the difficult things that happen in this world. Some of them are in place for um, for the purpose of better goods down the road. Sometimes that better good might be the final justice of God at the end of time, uh, a God who will restore things the way they should be in which the, the righteous will finally be uh, rewarded and the, the guilty, the unrighteous will be finally punished. And so, so that kind of eschatological hope mm-hmm. is really necessary for a, for a final and complete reckoning with the evil that we see in our world because, frankly, it's not all taken care of in this world. Um, you know, we we see people that, that die in prison of things that they you know of things that they were not guilty of. We see poor people that die um, because just because they're poor. Another another acts uh, mm-hmm. other instance of of injustice um, that and the hope is that God will make those right at the end of time. So so I think that, that in, in that sense, almost all of our reflection on evil and suffering in this world in this right now is rooted in the idea that down the road. Um, in the eschaton, God is going to uh, restore things. And that applies to to almost all reflection on this particular issue. Mm -hmm.
1: So a couple resource questions. For somebody who attends church regularly, likes to think deeply on certain occasions Mm -hmm. and may have stumbled across this because of something they've personally experienced, somebody in their life has experienced a tragedy, and they're trying to think deeply on this. What would you suggest for them, and then what would you suggest for pastors who are trying to walk people through this kind of topic, both in a either either in a pastoral sense or the more like we talked about the intellectual, the intellectual really getting down to the nitty gritty of some of the defenses and the theodicies. What what all would you suggest?
2: That's a hard question because <laughs> I don't think there's really been a good. Uh, simple presentation of a lot of these theodicies that are ex- easily accessible. Um, so I would say for the determined layperson, <laughs> maybe uh, Alvin Plantinga's uh, Ooh, God, God, Freedom, and Evil, because uh, Plantinga meant this to be more easily accessible, but it's, it's in so some brilliant. ways, it's, it's, so, it's not. Hard for him
3: I'm to laughing that you suggest Plantinga. Right? <laughs> I, I think it'd be a very, very right. determined uh, lay I mean, he's not impossible, but he's hard
2: Right. He's um,
1: a deep thinker. But, but He's a deep thinker.
3: Let me ask this.
2: Are you aware of any, like, because, like, let's say, you know, with William Lane Craig's reasonable faith, he has this on guard. Um, yeah. Uh, w- I know there's been a book that uh, I think that Alvin Plantinga put out recently that was supposed to be for the layperson.
3: I'm trying to think of. That was of, more on epistemology. Yeah, it, right, in epistemology, right. So, I mean, I, th- I think that um, that uh, going back to C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain is not a plan – Bad place to start. Lewis is a good writer. He sometimes can be, can be difficult. And the problem of pain is, is uh, is a seventy year old book, and that creates mm-hmm. its challenges too. But that's not a bad one. Um, I think that. Uh, um, uh, and a good book that um, that I'm going to be using next semester when I teach this class, I teach a class on good and evil in the spring of 2008, 2019, is uh, Tim Keller's Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Um, Keller is a very good mm-hmm. writer and thinker, and, uh, and, and obviously a popular pastor, and his stuff is pretty good. Um, another one that isn't... Too bad. I'm not sure where it fits in your scheme, Kim. But it might be some. It would be good for pastors, but I think it would also be helpful for thoughtful people that want to read. Is a book by John Stackhouse called "Can God Be Trusted," Hmm. and he works through a number of things um, relating to the problem of evil, thinking through some of the resources that are informed or some of the some of the answers that are supplied by other worldviews, other religions, other. uh, other worldviews, non, non-religious worldviews, secular perspectives. And one of the things that he reflects on is that while we may not be able to give a single answer, a single silver bullet answer to all the things that Christians are worried about regarding the problem of evil, as it turns out, the the, uh, the Christian worldview is able to supply an answer to this question that is probably more satisfactory than any other worldview. Um, if you're a secular individual And you believe that, be on the basis of evil, that there is no God, and you reject God altogether. What are you left with? Well, you're left with matter in motion, um, and bad things happen. That's what evolution is all about. It's the survival of the fittest, right? Some people are going to survive, and others are going to die, and it's just this, this competition, this red-toothed, you know, red-clawed, you know, yeah. Um, Well, that's not. Answering so so if you say well why is there why do bad things happen well that's just the way the world is well that you know that may be true but that's not really any kind of comfort there's no there's no hope for justice or there's no hope for reconciliation there's no hope for grace or forgiveness none of those things um, but in, in the Christian worldview those are all things that that we are promised and those go a long way towards um, reconciling the difficulties of our present situation with um the character of a good and good and powerful God.
1: Well that is all the time we have. I just want to thank you all so much for joining us and thank those who are listening for joining us and just encourage you to join us next week as we discuss issues of God and culture.
0: Thanks for listening to the table podcast For more podcasts like this one visit dts.edu/ the table. Dallas Theological Seminary, teach truth, love well.